What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, chat GPT keeps getting better. But is that a good thing? ChatGPT is what's called a large language model. It has the ability to generate human-like responses to a wide range of questions and prompts. And its capabilities have been praised by many as a major breakthrough in the field of artificial intelligence. However, there are also those who have raised concerns about the potential risks and drawbacks of ChatGPT. Some worry that it could be used to spread misinformation or propaganda, or that it could be used to manipulate public opinion in dangerous ways. Hey, Wes, it's Ava. Oh, hey, Ava. What's up? You should tell listeners you had help with that intro. Hey, I was just getting to that. Usually, I write the intros to the show, but today, everything I said just now was written by ChatGPT. I asked the bot to write an intro for a podcast episode about ChatGPT, and that's what it spit out. And to be honest, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I mean, it's a little stiff, not as sparkling as my usual prose, if I do say so, but it still made me fear for my job. But Ava? Yes, Wes? You should tell listeners that you're not a person, are you? Well, you've got me there. Ava, as you might have guessed, is herself an AI-generated voice. And that technology, too, is getting closer and closer to sounding like us. The point, of course, is that it's becoming a lot harder these days to tell what's real and not, and what's a person and what's a machine. Fortunately, we have some real live humans here to dig into all these questions. Bloomberg Tech reporters Dina Bass in Seattle and Rachel Metz in San Francisco, and Parmi Olson, a Bloomberg opinion columnist in London. They've all been covering the rapid rise of ChatGPT. Rachel, we're all hearing a lot about ChatGPT and the company OpenAI that created it. Microsoft is using OpenAI's technology and its products, and other companies like Google are scrambling to catch up. Can you tell us what is ChatGPT and how does it fit into the world of artificial intelligence or AI? Well, at its most basic, ChatGPT is a chatbot. You can ask it a question. Um, You are asking it something and it's going to give you something back. Um, And we've seen that before, right? Either you talk to something like Alexa or you can type to like a customer service chatbot on a website. But this is different in that it's generative AI. So it's not working quite the same way uh, as the uh, chatbots of yore, so to speak. And it's in part this because it's been trained on just a massive amount of data from the internet. When you say generative AI, what do you mean by that? Basically, you're 
giving it some input, which might be a question or a command, like write me a poem about Hello Kitty. And it's going to give you a response and it's not pulling it from a database or something like that. It's sort of coming up with it wholly anew, and each, which also means each time you ask that kind of question, you'll get a different answer. And they might be a little weird. They might sound very factually correct, but be like a little bit skewed. But in a lot of cases, it's actually um, interesting information that could be useful. Dina, where is the bot actually drawing this information from in order to form an answer that reads like a person wrote it? So basically what ChatGPT is doing is drawing from the whole internet. OpenAI basically scanned large volumes of internet content from all sorts of places, including social media, Reddit, various web pages, Wikipedia. And as a result, it gets a lot of different points of view. It uses that text in an artificial intelligence model that it's created, and it draws on what it is quote-unquote learned, but not really, to create sort of a mimicry of human speech that it learned from how people talk on the internet. You can see immediately what the benefits of that and the problems of that might be. So we're getting really interesting things like people asked it to generate Seinfeld scripts or cocktail recipes. But we also get misinformation, things that are incorrect, um, things that can be abusive or not very nice, things that can be creepy. One of the problems is when you get something that's wrong, ChatGPT tends to state it with the utmost confidence. So it's not going to flag to you that this might not be right. This is something that students that seized upon ChatGPT immediately for writing papers found out to their peril. Parmi, as Dina was saying, we're seeing all these instances from students to companies starting to use ChatGPT and starting to see this as a way of assimilating a large amount of information that isn't just coming up with funny poems. What are some of the ways that business is already getting their hands on this? Yeah, it's, we're in a really interesting moment for how we use these models, and I would call it a sort of honeymoon period. So when ChatGPT was first announced a few months ago, there were lots of screenshots shared on Twitter of people using it in fun ways, write how to remove a peanut butter sandwich from a VCR in the style of the King James Bible. That was my favorite out of all of them. But after that is now the companies trying to figure out how do we make money from this? So just recently, OpenAI released its latest, much more powerful model called GPT-4. If you think of the chatbot as being like a car, these models that Dina described, they're like the engine. And each engine is getting more powerful, allowing the car to go faster and do more things. And this new GPT-4 is more accurate, according to OpenAI, much more human-like in its responses. And in the announcement, OpenAI gave some examples of companies that are actually using GPT-4. One example was Morgan Stanley. So Morgan Stanley has been using GPT-4 since last year, and they said that about 200 of their wealth management staff had been using a chatbot, their own proprietary chatbot, that had been trained on thousands of papers written by their analysts to come up with a model using the GPT-4 model that could just give them answers more quickly than they would get if they had to read that research themselves. And so they're saying that what the advisors would take 30 minutes to do, they can now do in seconds. So the value here is that essentially companies can wring out more productivity 
from their workers than they did before. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about these systems replacing professional jobs. I don't think they're actually going to do that. I think they're just going to make professional workers have to do more in less time. So, Parmi, I want to jump in with one example and one question for you. Rachel and I were talking to Greg Bachman, who's the president of OpenAI. He mentioned another use case similar to Morgan Stanley summarizing all of these papers, which was the U.S. tax code. He flagged for us that he thought GPT-4 was super useful for summarizing the very complicated U.S. tax code and telling you what policy, what exemption is relevant for you. Probably would have been better if we had that a month ago before people started filing, but there we go. But I wanted to ask you on your point about replacing jobs versus increasing productivity. I hear the same thing from Microsoft, which is pushing this. It'll make you more productive. It'll free you from all the grunt work. But aren't there people at entry-level jobs that do that sort of thing, that do the summarizing for Morgan Stanley? Aren't there paralegals, computer programming as well? Aren't there entry-level jobs that may get replaced if we can't figure out how to upskill those people? I think that's a good possibility, but that's why I say large swaths. I don't think there's going to be large swaths of job losses, but there will be job losses. 100% people will be replaced by this. But it kind of makes me think of the translation industry. So professional translators five, 10 years ago were really worried about being replaced by Google Translate and Deeple and these other AI translation software tools. But in the end, there weren't a lot of job losses in the translation industry. They were just expected to translate more words. So instead of translating 2,000 words in a day, they were expected to translate 4,000 words in a day. And I was speaking to some people in the industry just recently because I thought that this was quite a useful parallel to figure out where we might be going with this more broadly. And there weren't a lot of job losses that they knew of, just anecdotally. So I think there will be some, and I think you're exactly right, Dina, that it will be these kind of entry-level roles. And I think people are just going to have to rethink what people do in those kinds of roles when they do um, come in as interns or kind of junior uh, workers. Rachel, Parmi has described the way some of these companies are using GPT for important functions, things that customers would rely on, critical information. But as Dina said earlier, the bot will spit out an answer with supreme confidence. And what we've learned is that sometimes it's just wrong. Like if it doesn't know the truth, it'll just kind of make it up. And isn't that a big problem if you're using it for business and you can't tell whether what the bot is spitting out is real or not? Yeah, I think that's a huge concern. And for me personally, I would be really reluctant to trust it at this point with any really important applications in my life, um, like personal finances. I would personally want to know if my bank is using it. I mean, maybe I'm like a little nerdier than the average person, but I'd want to know as specifically as what model are you using to get this information from? How much information can you give me about the AI model that you're using, the AI company service that you're using? Just to get a handle on like what might be leading to the answers. We have to remember that these are essentially statistical software. I mean, all the word generation, I should say, is being generated statistically. It's not like a machine that's pulling from two different pockets. One is, here are answers to things that I totally know, so I'll give you an answer from here, versus I don't know, so I'm going to make it up over here. It's just, it's really a jumble based on what it has been trained on and what it thinks is likely to be, you know, what you want as an answer based on the input you gave it. 
And that, yeah, that should make people nervous if it's being used to do things like deal with their personal money or their company's money. GPT-4, it, technically it's a, what you would call a multimodal model, which means it's not just generating text. It can also uh, do things like computer vision tasks, which you can't do that right now in like the AI playground that OpenAI has available to the average user. Like, here's a picture, tell me what the caption could be. We couldn't do that. And we should say this was the demo that OpenAI did when it released GPT-4, the new version. Right, because that was one of the really interesting parts of the demo was that you could point your camera, your phone camera, at the inside of your fridge and ChatGPT will now say what recipes you can make based on the contents of your fridge. Okay, but let's keep in mind those recipes might be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, or like, what cocktail should I make? There's an app that they're um, suggesting for people with blindness or low vision as well. It's not just cocktails. Yeah, no, I've known about that app for a couple of years. And it's, you know, they, I don't know if they were using machine vision recently or if they've always used humans. You know, for a lot of that, they've just had to use humans um, to help. But it's a, a super cool app. So how does that app work? In the little bit that I saw, which I thought was really interesting and fingers crossed that it like actually can work well and be helpful for people. Essentially, what you would do with the app, if you are blind or low vision, you might take a picture of, say, two slightly different shirts that you've laid out on your bed. Maybe one is blue with polka dots and the other is green with polka dots, let's say. And you could send in the picture and say, which is the blue one? Question mark. And it could send, tell you, you know, it would analyze the image and it would analyze your text and it could give you an answer. And that kind of thing could be super useful and really um, just a, like a speedy way to improve the day of somebody who has a hard time doing that kind of task that a lot of us think is super simple. You know, we don't even think about it, but that's hard for somebody who can't see that well. So the consumer applications that we're talking about, ChatGPT, the Microsoft Bing search, which is based on the new version of GPT, GPT-4, so that's a, a web search, and the thing Morgan Stanley is doing, or Microsoft and other companies are now putting these kinds of artificial intelligence capabilities in their business products. So the business products are learning from a more confined set of information. They have the ability to learn certain things from the internet, but they're learning from the company's data. So in the Morgan Stanley case, it's the Morgan Stanley report that analysts write that they would normally send to their financial advisors. In the case of Microsoft's customer service software or software for salespeople, it's learning from each company's database and set of information and set of interactions with customers. That's a, a more confined set of things and less the entire universe of the internet. So you have a little bit less uh, potential for it to go awry or to do something weird or to get something completely wrong, but the stakes are higher. In a, you know, a monetary material company application, there's some pretty high stakes. So I asked Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella this question when they unveiled some of the business tools. And his comment to me was, well, the humans make mistakes too. So we need to get to a point where, you know, the mistakes from the machine are lesser. But it is something to be aware of. The mistakes in the consumer chat are different also because at least in some of the applications, so if you take, for example, the Bing search engine that uses the OpenAI product, 
there are sources. What Microsoft has done to help people and to flag where the information is coming from is to cite the way a, you know, a high schooler would in a term paper and those links are clickable. You can go in and see this piece of information is coming from this news source and maybe I don't trust it or I'm reading the article and actually the article doesn't say what Bing says it does. I had that happen a few times when I was asking Bing about the U.S. shootdowns of the unidentified flying objects. Bing kept getting parts of it wrong and I could see where the error was coming from in the article. The concern people have, and it's a valid one, is will everyone do that or will they just look at the answer and, well, the answer's wrong and they're not going to click into the sources? I just think that humans, by and large, have this tendency to believe the algorithm more than they do other humans. So we put a lot of trust in machines collectively, which is why I think Satya Nadella's comment to you rings a little bit hollow. The bar for machine truthfulness is really high. And one of the things that makes this quite complex for people who use these systems is that we don't know how often GPT-4 or ChatGPT actually makes mistakes. AI and computer scientists have been referring to this as its hallucination rate. I've asked OpenAI multiple times, what's the hallucination rate for GPT-3.5? They won't say. The only thing they did say about GPT-4 was that its hallucination rate was 40% more likely to produce factual responses than GPT-3.5. Okay, that's great. So it's a little bit more factually, but we don't even know what the baseline was. So it doesn't really tell us anything. And the problem with AI systems generally is that the only way to really know how well they'll perform is when you release them into the wild. So we are all effectively the guinea pigs for this stuff. When these things get things wrong, that's how the designers of these systems will know. But we also have to pay the price, and we're not even sure what that price will be. You mentioned a couple of times this term hallucination rate. That's a great term. What exactly does that mean? Just confidently presenting as fact something that is not factual. Or fluent hogwash. That's the other one I've heard. When we come back, my convert, you know what, Ava, why don't you take it from here? More from Parmi, Rachel, and Dina after the break. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Parmi, we talked about some of the businesses that are using ChatGPT, and one of the people getting involved is Elon Musk, because, of course, what exactly is he trying to do, and how serious a venture is this? Because we all know that Elon Musk likes Elon Musk's name to be in the news. Yeah, and there's a lot of different shiny objects that Elon Musk likes to go after. And the latest one does appear to be AI and language models, multimodal models. So there was a report in the information recently that said that he was reaching out to artificial intelligence researchers and trying to form a new research lab. And the goal was to build this alternative to ChatGPT. 
Musk does have a storied history of involvement in AI development. He was an early backer of DeepMind, which is the AI lab that was eventually bought by Google. He is one of the co-founders of OpenAI, which is DeepMind's rival. Um, so he really has his fingers in a lot of very important pies in AI. And in recent years, he has grown a little bit you know, disenchanted with how these companies have pursued artificial intelligence research. He has complained that OpenAI was training AI to be woke. Um, so we don't know what's going on inside his head, but it may well be that he wants to try and build an alternative language model chatbot system that isn't constrained by the same kinds of content filters and policies that OpenAI has on its chatbot. Dina, I think when most people hear about AI or chat GPT, they think, they're the same thing. But there's a lot of AI products out there now with different uses. Can you give us like three examples of AI product categories, what the products do and what they're used for? It's interesting because GPT, even though we've talked about it as language, spawned a bunch of different things. So we've talked a lot about chatbots. It spawned a bunch of chatbots. OpenAI, when they were using it, also discovered it's really good at computer programming. So that's also another kind of language generation, but a completely different language. They were using it and they found that it did a very serviceable job with computer code. So they created their own version of a computer coding tool that they call Codex. Microsoft then reformulated that further into something called Copilot, which may be one of the most widely used corporate applications of this kind of AI already. There's a fair number of computer programmers that are using it at least for some of those sort of rote programming tasks, things that, uh, you know, were kind of bothersome and annoying to do. It also spawned image generation. So Earlier last year, before ChatGPT, everybody was fixated on OpenAI's Dolly. That also came out of the GPT model, and that's a, a product where you can type in a couple of words of text, and it, it will generate a picture for you. So if you want a grilled cheese clock in the style of Picasso, it will make that for you. Artists have been very unhappy with that. And the copycats of it, um, you know, other models that do that because artists are worried that uh, it's using their artworks without permission. And, you know, various of these models are using artists' artworks without permission in order to generate new art. The other thing that we were talking about before is search. This chatbot function and its ability to answer questions, whether it's doing it correctly or incorrectly, has reinvigorated the search battle. Google has been so dominant in search for so long, and Microsoft's Bing was essentially, you know, even though it has a couple percentage points of share, pretty dead in the water. In terms of the competitive battle, people have been wondering for years whether Microsoft would sell it or spin it off. That competitive battle is so dead that when Microsoft announced this new AI-powered Bing, I couldn't even find a research analyst that could give me market share data on this because everybody had pulled their analysts off of covering this market. But now, all of a sudden, search seems like it's potentially an open category again, even if we're not thinking Google's going to, to lose its dominant position. Google's you know panicked enough that they tried to kind of rush out their own reaction to the Bing bot, which they're calling Bard. And even though they announced it a couple days before Microsoft's event, it's still not really publicly available. We don't really have any sense of what it looks like. Yeah, I think one of the concerns about using these systems for search engines goes back to what we were discussing earlier about we don't know how often these systems make 
factual mistakes. And search engines, you rely on them to give you facts. So one of the arguments that some computer scientists are making now is that these systems, as magical and remarkable as they are, and human-like as they are, are just not fit for purpose when it comes to search engines. Because these are tools that are going to be used by millions, hundreds of millions, potentially billions of people. You cannot monitor everything that these systems are saying at that scale. And so, you know, could we be facing another misinformation epidemic? When you think about people who are easily persuaded or kids using these systems and they're taking everything that these tools are telling them at face value, that could really be a problem. And, you know, it's funny that for years we've had a misinformation problem from social media. Maybe now we could be entering an age of misinformation by algorithm because, as Dina was saying earlier, Google was caught on the back foot. It's racing to get out this bot, as Bloomberg News has reported. They're trying to put generative AI into all their products, rushing to unleash these tools to the public. But are all the proper safeguards really there? Yeah, that's something that I actually have been thinking about a lot lately. This speed to market makes me think about, like, can you think of another time in like the last 20 years or so when a tech company put out a product and like the iPhone, for instance, when the iPhone first came out, it wasn't like, here's a thing that can do a bunch of things like moderately well, you know, a decent amount of the time, but like, let us know, you know, how it does and we'll improve it over time and it's going to be a-okay. No, it had a very limited set of features. It didn't even have an app store. You know, I don't think it even had a flashlight at that point. And, you know, it could make phone calls and do a couple other things, get on the internet. You weren't expected to be the beta tester of the product and help improve it as it went. And I feel like it's really interesting that consumers are at this point expected to do that. And I'm wondering if consumers are going to get wary and or weary of that. And if so, like how long that's going to take. It just seems like a lot to ask of somebody, doesn't it? I mean, Rachel, one of the big problems is that, as Dina was saying, GPT can generate a photo that looks real. This idea of things that are fake, but look very, very real. How does it deal with that problem of fakery? We've heard about deep fakes, but this is like a whole different level of that. Yeah, and the fidelity of these images is getting better. And furthermore, there are other AI programs you can also use to, like in a sense, upscale the fidelity of an image. I've, I've played around with those a little bit and they're kind of, they're pretty remarkable. You know, you can use that for really good things. Like I have a sort of fuzzy old picture of a family member and I want to make it look crisper. But you could also use it to make something uh, that's fake look more realistic, um, or you could do it directly with one of these programs. I think it's just going to be tricky, and it might be one of those things kind of like computer viruses and, and InfoSec, where there's just a constant sort of battle to figure out what's real versus what's fake and stay ahead of it, and then it'll catch up, and then people will try to get ahead of it. It might continue apace for a while. These are very good tools for creating misinformation and disinformation at scale. One of the things we're seeing, and you often see this in technology, often the first at scale use for some new technology is pornography. You're already seeing that with these kinds of tools and, and deep fake pornography where celebrities' heads are being put on other people's bodies, doing things that the celebrities did not do. Social media companies are having to deal with removing those, removing fake voices. 
one of the big questions for the companies creating these AI tools is what can they do to clearly flag in you know watermarks and images or some sort of digital flag in text that something is AI generated so that people are aware of what they're dealing with. There hasn't been much success yet doing that in a reliable way because as Rachel says, people can always outsmart those and you're playing a bit of a game of whack-a-mole. We'll be right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Parmi, as you said earlier, we've seen lots of different versions of AI come along. How much of this is, I don't quite want to call it a fad, but sort of the latest thing, and how useful is this to build something even better in the future? It's definitely not a fad. This is something that people are already using. ChatGPT is the fastest-growing consumer internet tool in history. More than 100 million people signed up for it in just a few months. And they're not just playing around with it, they're actually using it for work. So I think it's going to fundamentally change a lot of things in terms of the way professional workers work in all sorts of industries. You know, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I think this is also going to have quite a negative impact on the creative industry. And I think, you know, when you think about writing or generating images, these systems, they're not inherently creative, but they can do things that creative people do. And I have heard from professionals who are using this tool to, for example, generate a video script. And the reason they do that, they say to me, is it removes friction from the creative process and it solves the blank page syndrome problem. But, you know, if you think about the creative process throughout human history, that's what brings value to artwork and that's what brings value to literature is the work that a human being puts into looking for that word that they couldn't think of when their mind is a vacuum. And I think it's a little bit sad that we might lose some of that when machines come in and solve that problem for us. It's much harder to quantify and track that kind of impact, but it is going to happen and it just leaves me a little bit melancholy. Dean, when you look ahead with the kind of AI that we've been talking about today, what are the next things that you think we should be looking for? We should keep looking for further penetration into corporate use cases and whether these things really work. If we're talking about is this a fad or not, it's not a fad, but we have to see how useful it actually is for people and where it runs aground or where it doesn't quite work. Technologically, I think we're going to see in the short term some models for video creation. We've talked about image creation, but there are companies working on video creation as well. And we're going to see regulation. That's one of the things we haven't talked about. The European Union is looking at how to regulate this. States in the U.S. are looking at how to regulate it. Congress has looked at it, but always seems to be moving a little bit more slowly. Some companies want regulation, but only as far as they want, not beyond what they want to see regulated. They want to sort of determine how far it goes and no further. Those are going to be issues. There's discussion, and we've written about it here at Bloomberg, about the climate impacts and the carbon impacts. One of the things 
We've talked a lot, and Parmi mentioned how much better these models are getting. The reason they're getting better is because they're getting bigger and bigger, and they're running on ever more powerful supercomputers inside of cloud data centers that are run by Microsoft and Google and Amazon. And the carbon output of those things is not insignificant. So there's a little bit of a call for, look, people need to actually reckon with what the costs of these things are and whether the use cases are worth the carbon output. Some of the things we've been talking about are iterating, getting better at what it can already do. But are there some unexpected things that we're not even thinking about that this technology may suddenly be used for? Using AI to spot and understand certain medical conditions. Um, Cancer has been one that's been talked about a lot. I think that that is actually a great use of the technology. One thing that I hope that we'll see more of is actually data sets that are more varied and better ways that companies come up with to fix a lot of the problems that they have with societal biases that pop up all over the place um, when you're using these machines. Because you can ask a question and get gender biases, for instance, very easily and matter-of-factly in the responses. But unless you go another step and sort of interrogate the model, like, why did you give me this answer? It's not going to really give you much more about why it gave you that kind of answer. A lot of people will just accept its answer as fact. This happened to me um, a couple times with, I was asking for nicknames for little kids, like for toddlers, for girls, and and the nicknames for boys. And GPT-4, gave me some really like sort of stereotypical, you know, like rascal and champ kind of names for boys and, and you know, sweet pea, jelly bean kind of names for girls. I didn't say, why did you give me these biased names? I just said, why did you suggest X, Y, and Z for a boy and A, B, and C for a girl? And then it said, ah, those were, you know, those were biased and here are some more neutral names. To make what Rachel's saying though really concrete on the potential negative impacts of bias, Rachel was talking about you know cancer applications and it can work if they get it working across all populations. So here's the very specific problem. You know, take breast cancer because people are looking at ways to scan mammograms for breast cancer or skin cancer. So both of those conditions can present differently in people of color. So the way uh, breast cancer can look in a black person who has breasts can be different. And if your data set is insufficiently diverse, if it is trained mostly on people who are white, people who are Western, Northern European, it may not pick up those breast cancers and people with darker skin. And that's very dangerous because you wind up switching a human scanner for breast cancer for an AI one that is insufficiently prepared to find breast cancer in all people. Literally people's lives are at stake if you do that wrong. This technology is changing so rapidly. It was only a few months ago that it was even released out into the public and we all became aware of it. As it's happening right before our eyes and we all have access to it, what should normal people do when they're approaching it? How should they use it? What should they be careful about? Like, what are good rules of the road in using this technology? Check everything. Yeah, I would approach it cautiously. Think about how much you want to trust it with personal data. You may want to not give these systems personal information. I wouldn't at this point. And definitely look with some skepticism at the results you get. And feel free, especially if it's a chatbot specifically, ask follow-up questions. You know, whether or not you think the information is accurate that you're getting from it, you can always type something like, why did you give me that? Why is that the right answer? And especially with like GPT-4, it'll text back, you know, here's 
why I think that. And then you might say, wow, this is completely off base. It did this to me with a few different things. So then you go, okay, I'm not going to trust you for this task. Or it might give you some really good reasoning that you can then just double check and say, okay, this was actually really helpful to me. But definitely check everything. Parmi, Rachel, Dina, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments at bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Michael Falero and Mo Barrow. Raphael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. And I'm Ava, a voice avatar created by Well Said Labs. And I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.